Exodus chapter 20, then from Deuteronomy chapter 5 on the fourth commandment, which we've heard already this morning. Turn our attention to, again, Exodus uh, chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, where God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested On the seventh day, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We'll read also from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. And uh, boys and girls, as we we read, I invite you to follow along and see if you can note any differences between the fourth commandment as we read it in Exodus and um, as we read it in Deuteronomy. I think there's at least two that are noteworthy Here in Deuteronomy 5, it says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. We'll read also from the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, we'll read just verse 42. It's just uh, spoken of Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. It has told us in verse 41 that there were added to the church that day about 3,000 souls. Now it sort of zooms back a little bit and tells us uh, what it was that the early church was devoting themselves to. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. As far the reading of God's word, we'll turn now to um, Lord's Day 38 in our, our catechism. We read those three passages in connection with question 103 on the fourth commandment on uh, page 891 in the back of your hymnal. We've been Uh, making our way through the first table of the law and how it pertains to our worship. We've uh, looked at the who of worship in the last couple weeks at the the how of worship in the second and third commandment. Now we look at the when and the what. Let's uh, read question 103 together responsively. It says, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? Uh, First, that the gospel ministry and schools for it be maintained, 
and that especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to the Lord publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life, I rest from my evil ways, let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. Congregation, according to uh, LifeWay research, this last year when um, Christmas fell on the Lord's Day, at least in the United States, 16% of Protestant churches elected to uh, cancel divine worship. Uh, One pastor said, we we still believe in the, quote, Sunday worship experience, but we have to meet people where they are. Another pastor, the former president of one of the largest evangelical denominations, said the same. He said, "Uh, yes, Sunday is the Lord's Day, and it, it should be a day that you spend with the family of Christ. But we we don't want to be the Pharisees of this generation where there's never an exception. And so to observe the incarnation of our Lord, they canceled Lord's Day worship. Remember this this last year, having a number of of, uh, conversations with with people about this, people who who wondered, um, does it it really matter? Is it it okay if if my church did that? Or, Or what would be the problem with doing so? Why is it such a big deal to, to cancel, not for providential hindrances, but for eggnog and cookies? If you have the, the misfortune of um, scrolling through any online discussions or uh, Twitter wars on the subject, it's, it's quite clear that the church of our day is confused on this subject. Is anyone who advocated anything remotely close to a, a reformed view of the Lord's Day was, fagged, was, was pegged as a, a Pharisee? who needs to worry about real problems and needs to, quote, meet people where they are. We see the whole problem is that that line of thinking begins with the assumption that, that worship is fundamentally about meeting people where they are and not meeting God where he is. Namely, among his gathered people, on the day that he's appointed. The uh, Sabbath command is part of the first table of the law about loving God and is not fundamentally about catering to the preferences of man, but rather the prescriptions in God's word from God himself. And so this morning, as we look at the fourth commandment and the question of when God would have us to worship and, and, and how he would have us to worship... I want to do so um, first with a a sort of overview of the the fourth commandment throughout Scripture from creation to Christ, and then a consideration of the primacy of public worship in observing the Lord's Day. We then close with some some application for how it is that that each of us might uh, meaningfully participate in this worship that Christ commands. Um, First, an overview of the fourth commandment throughout Scripture. This begins, of course, all the way back at, at creation, where God consecrated in Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day, 
as holy. We read in Genesis 2, verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And we see as we make our way through the rest of the Old Testament that this holy day was an an ordinance that God's people followed even before the Ten Commandments were given. Remember in Exodus chapter 16 when, when God gave his people bread from heaven, how he commanded them saying on the sixth day you shall gather twice as much bread for tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And it's interesting to note that the people were not confused by this, but, but they knew exactly what Moses meant. It required no explanation because they already had the categories of Sabbath observance. They, they knew what it meant. And so when God then gave them the law at Mount Sinai a short time after that, he didn't need to tell them about this, this new thing called the Sabbath, but was able to say very simply, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. These are not new terms, but the, the continuation of a pattern already established. Although there was one new aspect of it. In Exodus chapter 20, God spoke of remembering the Sabbath, for in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested. Boys and girls, maybe you, maybe you heard it as we were reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5. God's reason for um, instructing them to observe the Sabbath in Deuteronomy is his redemption from Egypt, Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. So now there are two reasons why God's people rest. One, because God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day, sanctifying it as holy. And two, because God's people were slaves in bondage and he rescued them with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. Because of God's work in creation and because of God's work in redemption, they were commanded one day in seven to commemorate those mighty acts, those mighty acts of creation and redemption. The late John Murray summarizes, saying, the the Sabbath commandment derives its sanction not only from God's rest in creation, but also from redemption out of Egypt. And this fact that the, the Sabbath in Israel had a redemptive reference and sanction bears directly upon the question of its relevance in the New Testament. For the redemption from Egypt cannot be properly viewed except as the anticipation of the greater redemption wrought in the fullness of time by Christ. He's saying we can't think about the Exodus without thinking about that to which the Exodus pointed. This is something that, that's, that Isaiah makes very clear, especially in, in the latter half of the book, Isaiah 40 through, through 55, over and over. He's, he's prophesying about this great redemption that will come when, when God's servant uh, comes and bears the sins of his people, but so often it's, it's spoken of as a new Exodus, where God will redeem his people yet again when Messiah comes. This is a theme not just in, in Isaiah, but um, in the last five years or so, there have been multiple books that have been in, published tracing this Exodus pattern all throughout Scripture, showing how this, this paradigmatic um, work of redemption is repeated over and over throughout redemptive history. You can think back a couple of years when we looked at the Gospel of, of Matthew, how Christ is so often in that Gospel presented as a new Moses. 
from the very time of his, his birth when he was, was uh, chased and his life was at risk because of, of, of an angry um, egomaniac king to the time when he then passed through the waters the, the, uh, into the wilderness for not 40 years but 40 days. He, he, after passing through the waters and into the wilderness, went up on the, on the mount. He gives God's people his law. You can even think um, as Jesus goes up on the mount, the mount of, of transfiguration, how in Luke's gospel it records for us what it was that Jesus was speaking about with Moses and Elijah, and it says they were speaking, Luke chapter 9, about Christ's exodus, about the greater redemption that he was going to bring about as the prophet like Moses who God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Redemption from Egypt was a type and shadow of our greater redemption from Satan's sin and death. In fact, the Belgian Confession makes this point very beautifully when it it says in the um, article on baptism that, that Christ is our Red Sea through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh who is the devil and enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. There's a long history of seeing Moses' redemption and and God saving them from Pharaoh as a type of our greater redemption through Christ. In fact, we we pointed out just before the sermon that same theme in number 356, which you might have noticed, by the way, was an ancient hymn written in the 8th century. All the way back that the church has seen this pattern of, of the exodus pointing forward to the greater exodus. The greater redemption. And that's important as as we develop a theology of the Sabbath because these two strands, these these two themes of creation on the one hand and redemption on the other are, are fulfilled in Jesus. Who when he rises from the dead on the third day not only accomplishes that that greater redemption to which the Exodus pointed, but also ushers in a new creation which is not yet here in full, but has already invaded this age through the resurrected Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that in Christ, the new creation has come. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Jesus is the last Adam. He is the firstborn of the new creation. And so the the two Old Testament bases for observing the Sabbath creation and redemption, find their fulfillment in Christ's resurrection on the first day of the week. If you were to just read through the the gospel accounts, you would find that every single one of them is careful to point out that the day of Jesus' resurrection was the first day of the week. Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, verse 1, and John 20, verse 1. All four gospel writers front the point that it was on the first day of the week. And as we we continue reading through the New Testament, we we find this this repetition of the first day of the week being mentioned as the day on which the church gathered. In both Luke and and John, they record uh, several uh, separate instances of, of Christ after the resurrection, meeting with his people on the first day of the week and ministering his word to them, even um, uh, breaking bread with them and uh, pronouncing to them his peace. Why so often do Luke and John feel the need to point out that it's on the first day of the week that Christ met with them and ministered his word to them? 
a theme that then paves the way for, for the early church in the book of Acts, where in Acts 20, verse 7, they're, they're gathering on the first day of the week for word and sacrament. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, they're gathering on the first day of the week to bring their gifts. And it, it seems very likely that it's this day, the first day of the week, that is referred to in Revelation chapter 1 as the Lord's Day. The day that, that belongs uniquely to the one who rose from the grave on it. I was helped in this uh, past week in reading uh, Guy Prentice Waters' uh, Biblical Theology of the Sabbath. He, he points out in the context of Revelation chapter 1 where, where John says that he was worshiping the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The very next thing that he sees is a vision of the resurrected Christ. Uh, Waters writes, in light of this pairing of the resurrection of Christ and a day that he particularly claims for himself, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that the Lord's Day is the first day of the week, the day when Christ rose from the dead and when Christians under apostolic supervision gathered to worship God in remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. The Sabbath is transformed from the last day to the first day. Again, to quote Waters, the the substance of the command is unchanged. However, the particular day does change. Beginning at the resurrection, the appointed day for God's people to assemble and the holy rest of worship is Sunday. On this first day of the week, we are to remember that Christ rose from the dead. The last Adam and firstborn of creation who accomplishes our redemption. And so we remember this, this new creation work, this, this bondage-severing, exodus-fulfilling, redemptive work of Christ rising from the dead to conquer the grave and save us from our sins. That's fundamentally what we gather each Lord's Day to do. That's why we sang, this is the day that the Lord has made. And the context of Psalm 118 refers to the stone the builders rejected in crucifying him and burying him then being raised from the dead triumphantly. And so every Lord's Day, we we gather to proclaim that good news must be central in in all that we do in our worship. It must be proclaimed in our preaching. Our our worship must be uniquely Christian worship with its focus on the death and resurrection of Christ who has ushered in a new age and redeemed us from Satan's sin and death. So next, then, we want to think about what are the elements of our new covenant worship. As we gather on the Lord's Day, what is it that we do in our gatherings? What we do indeed gather is assumed by our catechism, as it says that we must diligently attend the assembly of God's people on this festive day of rest. I think that's, that's something we ought not to overlook. That, that, that all of what it says we do so we gather all of what it says we do as we observe the Lord's Day is, is in the context of this public gathering. And the catechism isn't just forcing this point, but it's making this point for good reason, for the, the command to set apart the Sabbath as holy uh, never meant simply to, to sit at home and have a sanctified nap time. But again, as you compare Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see that remember the Sabbath, as it reads in Exodus 20 verse 8, is equivalent to observe the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5 verse 12. Hughes Olaf and Ol therefore writes, to, to remember the day means to observe the day. 
That is, to celebrate the religious rites appropriate to it. Observing the Sabbath day always meant religious worship. That's why it was set apart as holy, meaning for the purpose of religious worship, just as the the temple and the priests and all of those things in the Old Testament that were set apart as holy meant for the purpose of religious worship, so it is with this day. The Sabbath is set apart as holy for the purposes of religious worship. That's why James in Acts chapter 15 that the Jerusalem council said from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaimed him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The Sabbath as a day for formal religious worship where the word of God was central was understood from the Old Testament. Or Leviticus chapter 23, it says that the Sabbath, and this is interesting, Leviticus 23 gives us a list of all the different holy days, and and the very first one that's listed is the Sabbath, which was to be a holy convocation. In fact, that language of a holy convocation is echoed in the, the song that we sang, A Day of Rest and Gladness, where on holy convocations that hear that the trumpet call, God's people gather for worship. Central to observing the Sabbath is the public gathering of God's people to celebrate the religious rites appropriate to it. And so as you think about what those religious rites are for us in the New Testament, then I direct your attention to Lord's Day 38, where the Catechism, summarizing the New Testament's teaching, says that on this festive day of rest, when we, when we diligently attend the assembly of God's people, we are, first of all, to learn what God's Word teaches, Second, to participate in the sacraments. Third, to pray to the Lord publicly. And then fourth, to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Those are the the four main elements of New Testament worship. Likewise, if you look at our our church order, it lists those same things along with the the confession of sin as a a main aspect of our prayer to God. And both of those, our our church order and our catechism, are basing these elements of Lord's Day worship on the example and teaching of the New Testament church. That's why we read from Acts chapter 2, where it tells us in verse 42 what it was that the early church was devoting themselves to. Remember it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. As Calvin said, Luke here reckons up those things wherein the public estate of the church is contained. Calvin is saying these are the main things that they are devoting themselves to publicly. As they gather together, this is what they do. The great reformer Martin Butzer took this as, as a summary of the things to be included in our service of worship. The apostles' teaching, meaning that the public reading of the word, the preaching of it, which is to have central place. The fellowship, or, or koinonia, by which uh, Calvin and Butzer both understood Luke to be speaking of, of the sharing or, or giving of alms. Hence, our, our church order and catechism both speak of, of bringing Christian offerings for the poor. Uh, the breaking of bread is a reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's the language Luke uses in, in Luke 22 and Luke 24 and Acts 20. This is, this is customary language for the sacrament. 
And the prayers include both the, the public prayers that are offered on behalf of God's people and also the, the psalms and hymns that we sing as an expression of our thanksgiving and petition. Even our, our repentance, as we sang earlier, Psalm 130. Um, all that we do, that the ministry of the word, the sacraments, the offering, that the prayers and songs are included in this one verse. Uh, Calvin said, in this place are given four marks whereby the true and natural face of the church may be judged. In fact, he even went so far as to say no meeting of the church should take place without the word, prayers, partake of the supper, and almsgiving. He's making the point, Butzer is making the point, our catechism is making the point that these are the elements of Lord's Day worship. Word, sacrament, prayer, songs, gifts. Each of which are elsewhere explicitly commanded. So we're not resting everything on this one verse. We've been uh, preaching through 2 Timothy. And even this afternoon, Paul will say to Timothy, in his dying words, Timothy, preach the word. Or in 1 Timothy 4, give yourself to the public reading of it and to, to exhortation and to teaching. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, in Christ at the Last Supper will command us regarding the, the Lord's Supper to do this in remembrance of me. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 2 will command us to, to come together lifting holy hands in prayer and, and in Colossians 3 will tell us to, uh, to, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as one aspect of that. And in 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2, he will command the church when she gathers on the first day of the week to bring her gifts. These are the elements of Lord's Day worship. All of this, Lord's Day 38, in the context of the gathered assembly, not privately or as a family. That's what we do every other day of the week. But this day that uniquely belongs to the risen Christ is a day for the public worship of his people, giving thanks for the, the new creational redemptive work of his death and resurrection which is central in our prayers and song. It's central in our preaching. It's demonstrated in the sacrament and celebrated as we give our gifts that that good news might be spread. Our Lord's Day 38, that the theological schools might be maintained so that the gospel of our risen Savior might continue to be preached. These are the things we devote ourselves to on that day that uniquely belongs to the risen Lord Jesus. So lastly, then, we want to just think a little bit about what this means for each of us individually as we participate in the public worship of the church. We've um, hit on this a few times the last couple of weeks with regard to the preaching. But if I am to diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, then that means I must come ready to listen. Right? We heard that last week from Ecclesiastes 5, that it's, it's better to come into God's house to listen than to, to uh, offer the sacrifice of fools. And so we must come ready to listen. As the Westminster Larger Catechism says in question 160, what is required of those who hear the word preached, it says that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. That you examine what you hear by the scriptures, that you receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God, that you meditate and confer on it, hide it in your hearts, and that you bring forth the fruit of it in your lives. As we heard again last week from Ecclesiastes 5, we come ready to listen. 
prayerfully, having, having prepared to hear the word preached. That means uh, reading the passage that, that's going to be preached, examining it by the scriptures, which, which means doing the hard work of engaging with the sermon and following along, not being a, a passive listener like we're watching TV, but receiving it as the word of the king and doing so with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. We come to read from the word and hear it preached as God's word to us. And yet not only that, but we also come to receive his word visibly in the sacrament. I would just point out two things from Lord's Day 38. Um, First of all, that that all of this is, is modified by the assembly of God's people in which these things are to be done. And so we must be mindful as the, the corporate body, or we must be mindful of the corporate body as we receive Christ's b- broken body. So the Belgian Confession in Article 35 says that we are to receive this holy sacrament um, holily and reverently in the gathering of God's people, engaging together in thanksgiving and remembrance, and that, that by the use of it, we are to be moved not only to a fervent love for God, but also to a fervent love for our neighbor. And so together, we, we gather around the table to be stirred up in love for God and love for each other. We don't do this privately. There is no such thing as, as virtual communion. But then secondly, we, we do this joyfully. We, we do this together remembering that, that this is a, a festive day of rest, and it's a, a feast and, and not a funeral. And so we, we come to the table with joy and thanksgiving, not, not primarily um, introspectively, but looking to Christ and, and what he has done in, in providing his own body and blood for, for weak and needy sinners. As the early church in Acts chapter 2, we come with, with gladness, we come with joy. It is a festive day of rest. Moms and dads, we would do well to, to seek to communicate something of that festiveness to our children. We, we don't come into the, the, the presence of the king um, somberly or as a, a begrudging duty. But even as we, we help them to get ready on, on the morning of, of Lord's Day worship, we, we seek to cultivate something of the joy of what's about to take place, that the king has invited us to a feast, this festive day of rest. That, that festive um, aspect of all that we do should also be seen in our, our songs and our, our prayers, our, our psalms of victory and thanksgiving, which we join our hearts in together joyfully. In our public prayers, which we don't tune out for as, as the pastor leads, but, but we seek as best as we are able to engage our hearts and minds in and add our amen to joyfully and cheerfully participating also in the the giving of our gifts for the furtherance of the gospel, for the help of the poor, for the maintaining of the schools, for gospel ministry, and for the proclamation of the word even from this pulpit here at Emmanuel. That's that's what we're doing and and participating in as we give our gifts. The giving of our gifts is, is an element of corporate worship. It's not a break or an intermission where we, we take a pause and now spend all of our time chatting with our neighbor, but, but it is our joyful and solemn response to God who has given so much to us in the person of his son where Lord's Day after Lord's Day we then give him back our gifts cheerfully and generously so that this good news of the resurrected Christ might continue to go forth not only from, from, from here but throughout the world 
on this festive day of rest, this day of rest and gladness so that the heavenly manna might fall on holy convocations where gospel light is glowing with pure and radiant beams and the living water flowing with soul-refreshing streams. God in his grace desires our souls to be refreshed. He desires to give us manna from heaven. We read that in the call to worship from Isaiah chapter 58. He, he desires to make us ride upon the heights, to make us delight in him, and to make us feast on the inheritance of Jacob. He intends as we gather on this day to minister his grace to us, new graces ever gaining from this our day of rest. And so we don't shrug our shoulders at the the opportunity to gather for worship. Nor do we cancel it for eggnog and cookies, nor do we view it as legalistic to say that we shouldn't. But the King of heaven and firstborn of creation, the Lord of the Sabbath, has redeemed us from the bondage of Satan, sin, and death, bids us come that we might not only give him the praise that is his due, but that he might feed us with bread from heaven and with soul-refreshing streams. And so we devote ourselves to it. We recognize this is the most important thing we do. We gather with the, the, the triune God who bids us to come into his presence to meet with us. As we come both morning and evening trusting that there is nothing better that we could be doing than sitting at the feet of the king and being fed from his hand. We do so joyfully on this day of rest and gladness until we reach the rest remaining of which this rest is an emblem and foretaste. And our entire existence will be taken up in the corporate worship of the king for all eternity. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ has risen and ushered in, um, already in part, a new creation. That he has redeemed us from bondage to Satan, sin, and death and bids us come on this holy day of rest that we might hear his gospel proclaimed, rejoice in what he's done, and be conformed more and more to his image. Until we reach the rest remaining of which this Lord's Day worship is a foretaste when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered before the throne of the Lamb who was slain. Give us grace, Lord, to understand what an awesome thing this is. That as we heard last week, as we gather in your presence to worship you, that we would would do so with with trembling and fear, with um, awe-filled reverence. Help us, Lord, to understand what an incredible thing this is. To come into your presence, to be fed from your hand, to be fed at your table as we heard in the call to worship, to feast on the inheritance of Jacob. Help us, Lord, and our children never to take this for granted, but always to value and treasure it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.